can go really wrong, and we'll talk about some of them tonight. Um, I do pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to hear, help us not to mishear. Uh, would you take away the things I say that are nonsense and hurtful? Um, would you help us to be soft? Yeah, Lord, would you do your work by your Holy Spirit tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so good evening. Uh, my name is Christoph. Thanks for having me back again. Uh, the topic is boy-girl dilemma, and actually, uh, more precisely, I'm kicking it off with, I think it was the theology of male and female partnership, which sounds pretty boring, but it's basically what's God's idea when it comes to relationship. So the theology of male-female partnership, and that's a pretty big topic. And really, I cannot do it any justice in like 30-some minutes. And so I have to limit it a little bit tonight, and which I think is why you have a whole series of talks on this topic. But I'm going to limit it a little bit, and I will only look at Genesis 1 and 2 with you. Um, and actually, just a little bit. Because why would I do that? Well, because it's there in Genesis 1 and 2 that we are told that everything was good or even very good. So in other words, it tells us about God's intention, his plan for female and male relationships before things went wrong. And things, of course, did go wrong, right? It begins in Genesis 3 and then spirals down and ends up being the world that we all know every day. And so I will not discuss all the things that might be wrong with male-female partnership and relations, such as mistreatment, domination, coercion, oppression, abuse, cruelty, gaslighting, bullying, and all of those sort of things. Um, I want to look at what God initially had in mind when he created humanity, not how a bad situation had to be accommodated. I leave all that bad stuff to talk uh, about um, for my wife next week. <laughs> there you go, under the bus. Um, so my plan is just to go through Genesis 1 and 2. So if you have a Bible or a device or something, it would be helpful if you have that in front of you. And I want to make a few observations, uh, three waypoints uh, along. And that might be a little bit disjointed. So... Um, just let me do the points I want to make, and then I'll try to pull it together at the end. And so you linear thinkers, you might have some tension, but I'm warning you right now. So, okay, just, all right? <laughs> so Genesis 1 and 2. So let's start, way stop number one. Let's start with Genesis 1, 26 uh, to 31. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and I believe there are some uh, verses will appear on various screens. Is that right? Under me? Good. <laughs> Fabulous. Right? Um, a, a passage you know very well. Um, I won't read it. You can read it yourself. You have it in front of you. I will just dip into the text here and there. So first of all, I want us to notice that man and woman are given two jobs. Right? Job number one is to rule, as in verse 29. And job number two is to multiply, to procreate, in verse 28. That is, we are to fill the earth and subdue it, verse 28. And these two functions, these two jobs, require male and female to work together in partnership. Which is rather obvious, at least it used to be, when it comes to making babies, right? Both female and male are given that job. They cannot do it without the other. 
And that's by God's design, God's very good design. But you see, this is also true of job number one, the ruling and subduing of a wild, chaotic creation, right? Both male and female are to rule. What I mean here is that you cannot use Genesis 1, you cannot use Genesis 1 to say that males alone are given the divine command to rule. As if it was only the male's job to rule and the, you know, to give orders and the female's was to follow. In fact, that would have been pretty easy to say here, but it's not what it says. In Genesis 1, both male and female are told to rule and fill the earth. You see, these two activities precisely are what it means to be created in the image of God. God rules and creates, and so it is for those who are created in his image. That is why we are told to rule and procreate. God provides the pattern, right? We are created in his image. We are given a domain, a realm to rule and to fill, which is both for male and female to do. Again, I'm just making sort of points as I go along the way. I pull it together later. But that means here in Genesis 1, it means that there is something inherently divine about male and female partnership, marriage, right? There's something inherently divine about marriage, about setting up and ordering a house together, a domain, a family. And there's something inherently divine about having children, which is why it hurts so much when you're unable to. That sounds very traditional, right? I'm already boring you. <laughs> it sounds very traditional, right? But this is in Genesis 1. So on the one side, it is radical, right? Because it suggests that there's an equality and a codependence between male and female, which is radical for most cultures and at most time periods in world history. But at the same time, it is also rather traditional. Why? Because God endorses, sets forth marriage between one male and one female as something normative for humanity, as a good thing. And I have to say that here on this stage because the nuclear and our extended families, they have fallen out of fashion, right? But it's God's good idea. It's normative for male and female partnership. Now verse 27, which we know well, the verse where it says humans are created in the image of God. The text goes to great lengths to emphasize the fact that humanity is intended to be male and female, binary, and not, for example, asexual, that is, sexless. And that, of course, means that not just males are in the image of God, nor that just females are in the image of God. Remember, in the ancient world, actually, it was rather miraculous that women could create life. Right? So there's the sacred feminine. And that's why there's all these sacred taboos around sex. But male and female both are in the image of God. Now being in God's image, therefore, it seems, 
has something to do with plurality and unity. And it's something, that's a really, this something is a really big theological rabbit hole <laughs> that I'm not trying to go down. <laughs> uh, but notice here, it, this interplay between where God speaks of himself as a singular and as a plural. Look at this in verse 26. Let us make Adam, that is humanity, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish, and so on and so on. And then it says, and God created Adam, Adam, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So there's a very strange interplay between singular and plural. And I don't think this is by accident that being in God's image is represented by two equal but distinctly different beings. Beings that need one another. In other words, being in God's image somehow is represented by a relationship between two equal but different beings. If you permit this thought for a moment, God could have just made us asexual, right? Like with no differences and no need to procreate, no gestation. Right? Alternatively, he could have made us hermaphrodites, right? Each person having both sexes. So in other words, he could have made us self-sufficient or same-same. Right? But I think because we are created in the image of God, in some sense we are equal and yet different. We are binary. That means we are beings that need one another to fulfill our mission of ruling and procreating. And in this, we have to depend. Right? And so I think there is a reason why God is revealed to us as father and son, equal but different a plurality that is a unity in the spirit. So human partnership, human relationship, I think, I think, and there's a big debate, <laughs> reflects to some extent something, again, a big something, about the divine. At the very least, it means that we are compatible with God, that we can relate to God. And this is why it is important to know what is normative, what Genesis 1 says, right? And to embrace it, because it is very good. That was waste stop number one. Let's go on to waste stop number two, which is Genesis 2, verse 18 to 24. If you do this or that, or flick over um, whatever you need to do, or just look on those screens. Right? Genesis 2 is a zoomed-in version of the creation story you just heard. It's a more imminent and intimate, really, retelling of the story of human creation because God gets his hands dirty here in Genesis 2, right? He makes a mud man and he blows the spirit of life into him. And of course, Adam and Eve, man and woman, are created in sequence. First, Adam and Eve. So it's a little different than Genesis 1. Now, by the way, sequence here does not mean hierarchy right, or superiority. In the context, actually, of Genesis 1, that which is created last should, in fact, be superior. Oh, boy. <laughs> but, but this is not what this text is about, actually, right? Notice here, Eve, Chava in Hebrew, which means life, she is taken from and out of the side, not the rib, out of the side of Adam, the human. She comes out of him, 
as much as every human subsequently comes out of a her. Right? And so this is about derivation, about how every human you know, afterwards has a mother and comes from a woman. Eve herself, however, comes from Adam. Right? And so the point of the story uh, is to underline, to emphasize the codependence of male and female. After all, and this is how this text starts in 2.18, it says, it is not good for the man, for the Adam, to be alone. And Eve is then presented to him as somebody who is derived from him, someone who is suitable and compatible to him, unlike the animals that he gets you know, shown earlier. So this is a story about belonging, about clinging, right? Verse 23 and 24, about being family. And that, of course, is explicitly mentioned. So in verse uh, 18, if you can look at that real quick, it says about the woman, about Eve, that she is made to be an ezel, is the Hebrew word. It's very nice, it's very guttural, right? She's an ezel. Um, which can be translated in two ways. Either you translate it as help, or you can translate it as strength. <laughs> and that makes a big difference, right? <laughs> but regardless, actually, biblically speaking, the one who is made off and out of the side of Adam is made to be, who's made to be a help or strength, right? Opposite of him at eye level is not in Hebrew understood as somebody who is inferior. Because being a help or a strength does not imply inferiority in the Bible. Because it says many times of God that he's an ever-present help and that he's our strength. Right? God is our help and our strength. So that does not by itself mean that God is inferior. In fact, actually, the text tells us that Adam being alone is not a good thing. Right? So... It is normative for male and female partnership, what we find here. Codependence, belonging, clinging, exclusiveness. In other words, heterosexual lifelong monogamy. I know it's a bit boring. Adam and Eve. God's very good idea. On to way stop number three. Hold, hold your horses. I'm trying to pull it together in a moment. Way stop number three which is Genesis 2.25. can put it up on the screen there, if we have it. We don't. Um, Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. This verse means it is normative for men and women to be naked. <laughs> ah, hey, you're still listening, good. <laughs> Tuning back in, good. <laughs> Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm just checking if you're listening. No, seriously, this is a strange sentence, right? At the end of this second creation story. And of course, it's a transition and it sets up the scene for chapter 3, right? What's going on in Genesis 3. Well, the point I simply want to make is that it's God's plan for female-male partnerships that that did not include shame. In other words, we should not allow shame dynamics to dominate our relationships, especially, especially in the church, right? In the community of the redeemed. Paul uh, gets very cranky when we do that, right? There's a story in Galatians. But you know, trying to save face, trying to ma manipulate what others see, 
being secretive, feeling insecure, what others might think of us, and so on. These things are not part of God's plan. Again, what's normative for male-female partnership is codependence, belonging, clinging, exclusiveness, and authenticity. No shame. Shame, image management, fake facades, fear, they're not part of God's plan for male-human relationship. Of course they are now, and that's part of Genesis 3, um, but shame and shaming has no place in godly relationships. So, said lots of things, let me pull them together. What do we need to say about the theology of male and female partnership? What has God in mind when it comes to this boy-girl thing? Well, based on Genesis 1 and 2, male and female are created in the image of God, and as such, they are equal before God and equal before one another. And therefore, a single human, whatever sex, is of immense value to God, especially since Christ came to redeem every man, woman, boy, or girl. Right? As Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, so there's no race, there's neither slave nor free, no, you know, no castes, right? there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And because we are in God's image, we are equal to one another. So Genesis 1 and 2 is radically, radically egalitarian. God is into equality. And that's something you might not like or maybe something you really like, but this is Genesis 1 and 2. Moreover, normative for male-female partnership in God's plan is co-ruling, procreation, mutual codependence, belonging, clinging, exclusivity, and authenticity. That sounds pretty swish, if I say it that way, <laughs> but it's rather traditional. Right? It means that there's something normal, an inherent normative and divine about exclusive male and female partnership, about marriage and family. Humans and human society flourish where this model of human relationships is lived out, of course, in dependence on God. And so God is into marriage and family. That's maybe something you like or maybe something you don't like, um, but this is in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's a quote, it's on the screen in a moment, by a British theologian, the Reverend Ian Paul, who has done a lot of thinking on this topic. And here he says, quote, the biblical narrative, the Bible, offers an egalitarian vision of humanity made male and female in the image of God. They're given the task of exercising God's delegated dominion over the world, primarily through men and women being joined together in marriage and having a fruitful relationship which includes the birth and raising of children. Alongside this, the fruitfulness of kingdom life means that for some, celibate singleness is a parallel calling. That is on his blog, if you want to look this up. Now, this talk is supposed to be about the theology of male and female partnership, and maybe the question in your head, most likely, for some of you for sure, 
because you're not married, <laughs> was, what if I'm single? Right? You may have thought that. Do I miss out on this glorious, very good plan? Or perhaps a little bit more seriously, am I less of a human if I'm not married? Well, no. According to Genesis 1.27, both men and women are created in the image of God. And that means what makes you human is being created in God's image, either as male or female, and not that you're married or that you're subsequently able to subdue some space or that you can fill it. Otherwise, children, the disabled, the unborn, singles, or same-sex attracted people are less human than married people, right? But what makes us human is that each of us is created in reference to God. It is not our capabilities or our achievements that make us human. And though marriage and family, as I told you earlier, is generally speaking normative for human flourishing and God's good, God's good plan, marriage does not by itself make you more human. And all the married people say amen. <laughs> right? Marriage does not make you necessarily more human. It makes you possibly less so. Jesus himself, Jesus himself, as far as we know, was unmarried and had no children, right? And he is the example we ultimately need to follow, right? In fact, singleness for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom of God is a new thing that Jesus himself opens up and invites some of us into. So what completes you as a human is not a relationship with another human, but a relationship with the image of God in whose image we are all created, right? And who is the image of God? Well, Colossians 1.15 tells us the image of God is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the ultimate reference point for what it means to be in the image, for what it means to be human, right? In other words, you are incapable of being in the image of God without God regardless of your marital status, for sure. You can't live the good life without Jesus Christ, who is light and truth and life, regardless of your marriage status. And as a married man, I can tell you, you singles out here this evening, that without Jesus, my marriage would not and cannot work. Without Jesus, two selfish people and a bunch of selfish kids is not a recipe for flourishing. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you can come to the altar later. <laughs> right? But you see, this is also true for singleness, right? You cannot live by yourself without Jesus. You need him. You need his church. You need brothers and sisters to walk with you. You see, male Female union, that is, interdependent relationships, might express something about God, but it is not salvation. Humankind as a whole and individually indwelt by God's Spirit, that's the ultimate plan. That is salvation because salvation is to be in union with God himself and to be in union with Christ. And depending on who you are, 
marriage or singleness can help you on the way to that vision that God has for us. So, to summarize, I'm almost done, two sentences. This is the last warning for the people behind me. <laughs> to summarize, <laughs> according to Genesis 1 and 2, according to Genesis 1 and 2, we find that God's vision for human relationship and human partnership is radical egalitarian, radical equality, which is radical for most ages and cultures. But two, God's vision is also traditional marriage and family. And number three, God's vision, God's plan, God's theology is an utter need for dependence on God for life and godliness. God himself is the ultimate reference point for what it means to be human. Thanks for listening. We'll be later for some questions. Give it back to you, Ollie.